name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that they may be ever truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolations, through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. So we're at the very beginning of John chapter 17, and those of us who have been following the Sunday Gospel readings over the past few weeks, and indeed the weekday Gospel readings over the past few weeks, this is a very familiar style of Gospel passage. In John's Gospel, Jesus often engages in these long discourses, where all we have in the passage that's given to us at Mass is Jesus speaking. Now, with certain parts of the Gospels, when we hear them read at Mass, we know exactly where we are. If we hear about the baptism of Jesus, we know we're near the beginning of his public ministry. If we hear about the Last Supper, we know that we're in the Passion narrative. We're at the end of his earthly life. And if he's risen from the dead, well, that's pretty obvious where we are on the Gospel, isn't it? But with these discourses of John, it's often a bit more difficult to place exactly where they are. In these discourse readings at Mass, we're not given the broader context that allows us to work out where exactly we are in the story of Jesus' life. We're just given the discourse. So sometimes it's difficult to work out what's just happened, what's about to happen, what the significance of this discourse is. So where are we? Well, we need to go back a little bit to get the full context. In chapter 13 of John's Gospel, we had the washing of the disciples' feet, where we read that, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father, which told us that we were now on the cusp of the Passion. And following the washing of the feet, we had Jesus foretelling his betrayal by Judas and Peter's denial of him. 
And then the next four chapters from chapter 13 up to chapter 17 are dialogue with his disciples, culminating in his declaration that the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And then after this gospel passage that we're thinking about today, which in its entirety actually takes up the whole of chapter 17 of John, then we have Jesus' portrayal and arrest. So we're plunged right into the events of the Passion, Christ's suffering and death on the cross, followed by his resurrection and ascension, in which Christ's revelation of God is holy, entirely and perfectly enacted. So that's what happens after John 17. So this discourse is in certain ways a kind of bridge by taking us from dialogue with the disciples into prayer to the Father. It's also taking us from the section of the gospel about Jesus' public ministry very decisively into the section about the Passion. And this passage of John picks up several themes of previous discourses in order to really hammer them home, and in particular to hammer home that these themes can really only be understood in the context of Christ's union with his Father, a union which, as we read in this passage, into which he wishes to invite all his disciples. So if we take the theme of eternal life, for instance, back in John chapter 5, 21, we read Jesus saying, Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. And in this passage, John 17, we read that the Father has given Jesus authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the theme of eternal life gets reiterated. But we also get echoes of themes not only from Jesus' public ministry, but also from the prologue to the whole gospel. For instance, the fact that Jesus has authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him puts us in mind not just of John chapter 5, but also John chapter 1 verse 12, where we read, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And in this passage, when Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. We're put in mind of the very beginning of the whole of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The thing is, John is not just referring us back to events earlier in his own Gospel with this discourse in John 17. John is also putting what is happening in the whole context of salvation history. By recording Jesus' long farewell discourse on the eve of his death, John is deliberately drawing a parallel with the farewell discourses of the prophets and patriarchs of the Old Testament, that is, the key figures in the salvation history that Jesus is now completing and fulfilling by his passion. For an example, we can look at Deuteronomy 31 and 32. This is what we see Moses doing on the eve of his death. We read, Then Moses recited the words of this song to the very end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop like the rain, my speech condense like the dew, like gentle rain on the grass, like showers on new growth. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, 
ascribe greatness to our God. So that's Moses's farewell discourse. And this is how John is inviting us to read this discourse from Jesus. It's a pivotal moment that sums up key themes of Jesus' mission and ministry in a prayer to the Father from whom he receives that mission. And it puts that mission in its fullest context, the incarnation, in the references to John's prologue. And it points us forward to the passion to Christ's death through being structured as an Old Testament farewell discourse. Though, of course, as we know, this is a very different kind of farewell discourse because of what happens after Jesus' death. It's a very different kind of death. It's one in which death is decisively defeated. So this is a very densely packed gospel, as all of John's discourses are. It's got many layers of meaning, and it might be difficult to know where to begin with unpacking it. So what I thought we'd do is perhaps just look at three words from this gospel in order to find out what they teach us about God, about ourselves, and about the church. That's the usual structure we use in this webinar. What can this teach us about God? Where can I find God in this passage? Where can I find the human person? Where can I find the church? And so we'll be looking at just three words in order to do that. You'll have heard it said that scripture is divinely inspired. And this means that every word of the scriptures is there because God wants it to be there. And I know I've said this in the past on this webinar, that every word is there in the scriptures because God wants it to be. Every word can teach us something about God. We read in the Catechism, for instance, through all the words of sacred scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance, in whom he expresses himself completely. That's Jesus Christ. So I thought we'd really take that Catechism passage to heart today. And for each of the questions that we always ask in this webinar, where is God in this passage? Where is the human person? Where is the church? For each of those questions, we're just going to look at one single inspired word from this Sunday's Gospel. So the first word we're going to look at is glory. Father, Jesus says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. What can the word glory teach us about God? Jesus' whole prayer to the Father is a prayer for glorification. It's a prayer for God's glory, a glory that Christ has always had in the Father's presence to be shown forth in him to the world. So what does it mean for Christ to be glorified by the Father? What does it mean for Christ to have glory? And what, when it comes down to it, is glory? So from the passage, it seems that God's glory is linked to God's presence. Jesus twice mentions God's presence in relation to glory. And it's something that's made manifest by Christ, as he puts it, finishing the work that you gave me to do. The glory is made manifest by Christ finishing the work that the Father gave him to do. Now, we can understand a bit more what this means, the link between glory on one hand and on the other, the presence of God and the work, the mission, that God has given his Son, by looking in the Catechism. So, paragraph 293 tells us, Scripture and tradition never cease to teach and celebrate this fundamental truth. The world was made for the glory of God. St Bonaventure explains that God created all things not to increase his glory, but to show it forth and to communicate it. 
for God has no other reason for creating than his love and goodness. And if we go on, in paragraph 294 of the Catechism, we're told, the glory of God consists in the realisation of this manifestation and communication of his goodness for which the world was created. God made us to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, for the glory of God is man fully alive. So the Catechism very clearly links God's glory with his creation. God's glory is his love and goodness made fully evident, fully manifest, in and through the goodness of his creation. Now, this is interesting because John's Gospel, the Gospel that talks the most about glory, and in the most detailed way, is also the gospel that riffs most heavily on Genesis and the creation account in Genesis. John in his gospel makes lots of allusions to the beginning of the book of Genesis in order to make the point that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in his divine nature the eternal creator present at the beginning of time, and that the work of salvation that Christ brings about is a work of recreation. It's undoing the damage wrought on creation by sin and death, but not in a way that's just a step back into something old. It's a step forwards. It's taking us forwards into something new, something even greater than creation was originally. Let's take two examples to illustrate this. John's Gospel begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. Now, he's using the exact same opening words as Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. But he goes on to give a, a potted account of the creation narrative. We read, all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. Now, if we go to Genesis, we read that the first man, Adam, lives in a garden. We read, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And in the Gospel of John, the new man, raised to new life, Jesus Christ, appears after his resurrection in a garden. Mary Magdalene, we read in John chapter 20, supposes the risen Jesus to be the gardener, which in a way he is. He is the master and the maker of the garden of creation, made new in his resurrection. So this, in short, is how John makes the link between the creator God and Jesus Christ, God made man, who was with the Father before creation and through whom that creation came about. He makes all these links and allusions to the creation account in Genesis within his gospel. So glory and creation, these two themes that come together in John's gospel and also in the teaching of the church as expressed in the catechism. The glory of God is God's love and goodness as made abundantly clear and manifest through his creation. And the fullness of that glory is given to us through Jesus Christ, as the Catechism teaches us and the Gospel of John shows us through linking the life of Christ with the creation account in Genesis. And this is one of the ways in which John, in his presentation of Jesus, differs from, say, St. Paul. When Paul talks about the Incarnation, for instance, in Philippians chapter 2, it's a very different sort of emphasis. We're told in Philippians 2 that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So to Paul, the incarnation is about Jesus being humbled and abased in human nature. It's a humbling and abasement that culminates in the humiliation of suffering and death before he can be raised and exalted in the resurrection and the ascension. But John takes a different slant. To John, Jesus' whole incarnate life shows forth the fullness of God's glory. And this perhaps explains why John's gospel doesn't have a transfiguration narrative. So in the three synoptic gospels, we read of Jesus at a point in his public ministry going up a high mountain with Peter, James and John, and there being transfigured as a kind of foretaste of the glory of his resurrection. In Matthew, for instance, we read, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzlingly white. It's one big solid sign of his glory. Whereas to John, the glory of God in Christ is manifest at every moment of his incarnate life. Everything he does in his human nature shows forth God's glory because it shows the love and the goodness of God in creation. But creation as it is meant to be, creation free from the power of sin and death. As John says in his prologue, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So if we go back to our gospel passage, John 17, we read that Jesus says to the father, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So the incarnation by which God's glory is made manifest on earth through his son is a work. It's the purpose for which Christ was sent. Jesus didn't come to hang out on earth with us just for the fun of it, but to bring about a new creation, a new creation where sin and death, the things that are not of God, things that are not and were never part of how creation was meant to be, are no more. That is his work, his work of making new. To understand this a bit more, we can turn to the book of Revelation, which is the written account of a vision that John the Evangelist received near the end of his life, where John sees Christ enthroned in heaven. And John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. So Jesus is glorified because he has completed the work of making new, of reconciling God and humanity after their original friendship was broken by sin. He is glorified because in his incarnation he has made manifest the goodness and the love of God which shines forth in his creation, a goodness and love that has been obscured by the evil that entered the world through sin. So the story begun in Genesis 1 
the glory of creation, finds its ending in Christ, the glorious first fruits of the new creation. We read in the Catechism in paragraph 280, Creation is the foundation of all God's saving plans, the beginning of the history of salvation that culminates in Christ. Conversely, the mystery of Christ casts conclusive light on the mystery of creation and reveals the end for which, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the beginning, God envisaged the glory of the new creation in Christ. So we've seen that the glory of God is revealed in his incarnate Son, who shows forth God's love and goodness through and in his creation as it was always meant to be. But now we've got a question. Because Christ is asking God to glorify him, we read, because the hour has come. That's what Christ says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now that would seem to say that the glory of God hasn't yet, at this point in Jesus' earthly life, been fully manifested. Jesus asking for glorification would imply there's glory yet to be revealed. Glory that has to wait until this particular hour to be revealed. So this is our second word, hour, and that's going to teach us something about the church. What does Jesus mean by the hour? This word hour is one that we often hear in John's Gospel, and the times and the places at which Jesus uses it suggests that he's using it in a way that has a significance beyond just clock time, beyond chronological time. This hour, it seems, is not just a chunk of 60 minutes. The first instance of the hour in John's Gospel is at the wedding feast of Cana. So there we read, When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Then we have John chapter 5, where after Jesus has healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida, he says, Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Then in John chapter 16, in his dialogue with the disciples before the Passion, Jesus uses the word hour several times in quick succession. For instance, he tells his disciples at John chapter 16, 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Then a little bit later at chapter 16, verse 32, he tells the disciples, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Now that's almost at the very end of John 16, so going into John chapter 17. It's only a few verses later that we enter chapter 17, and we have the passage we're looking at today, Jesus' prayer to the Father before his passion. In fact, the way in which Jesus uses the word hour in his public ministry reveals that the hour is, in fact, his passion, death, resurrection and ascension. The climactic events of his earthly life which reveal him as the saviour of mankind and bring about that salvation for us. And Jesus has also made the link already in his public ministry between this hour of crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and with glory. So he's already made the link between the hour and glory. 
after the raising of Lazarus, he says to Philip and Andrew, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So it's the hour of salvation, the hour of the passion, death, resurrection and ascension of Christ that fully reveals God's glory on earth. It is in these four events that Christ is fully glorified. The passion, the death, the resurrection and the ascension. Now, I know it's very clunky that I keep fully listing passion, death, resurrection, ascension like this. You're probably thinking, Sister Corinna, you don't need to keep saying it. But I think it is important to hold in our minds that the hour of Jesus consists of all of these things, of all these events, inseparably. It's not that the resurrection is the hour and everything leading up to it is just preparation. And it's not that the crucifixion and death of Jesus is the hour and the resurrection is a kind of nice happy addendum to the hour that gets tacked on the end. John's insistence in recording Jesus' use of the word hour in this very systematic way tells us something about salvation. Human beings, as we know, because that's what we all are, live within time and are saved within time. It's just how we operate and how God has chosen to operate. God, in enacting his plan of salvation through his incarnate son Jesus, has come to live as one of us within the same ebb and flow of time, minutes, hours, days, that every other human being lives in. But to live and to think within time presents us as human beings with a temptation. It's the temptation to assume that the temporal boundaries between the events of the divine work of salvation, so Christ's suffering, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, which to us are all separate events one after the other, dunk, 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 exist not just in our perspective, but in the mind of God. We're tempted to believe that because our understanding of God is conditioned and limited by time, and because God has chosen to enter into the limits of time in his incarnation, that God in and of himself, in his divine nature, is limited by time. But he's not. And John wants us to understand that actually our salvation, the act of God that is our salvation, is one great sweeping act of God, not constrained by time and place, transformative of all reality. And John's use of power is one of the ways in which he does that. Another way is through the continuity of talking about Christ's wounds. So John draws attention to the wounds of Christ's body, both before and after his resurrection, to make a point about continuity. But really the key way in which John makes this point about continuity is the hour, the use of the word hour. But the thing is, what happens once the hour has passed? The hour in which Christ is glorified. What happens once that's been and gone in history? Christ died and rose again 2,000 years ago. I mean, I don't even know how to calculate how many hours it's been since the hour of Jesus. But this is where the church comes in. Because through Christ's mystical body, his hour becomes our present reality. It becomes present to us through the sacraments, above all in the Mass. As the Catechism tells us, the Eucharist makes present to us the one sacrifice of Christ the Saviour. Elsewhere, the Catechism says that the Mass represents, that is, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross. 
through the hour of Christ, through the saving act that fully reveals the glory of God, God's grace, mediated to us through the sacraments of the church, enters every single hour of our lives. In other words, every moment of our lives has been transformed by Christ's saving act, so that we live constantly in his hour, the hour in which he defeats sin and death and opens the way to eternal life for us. By the church, which gives us the sacrament of Christ's body and blood, the Eucharist, Christ's hour is not simply something in the past. It has become our present and our future. And in the passage, we have a great emphasis on Christ's union, both with the Father and also with those whom the Father has given to him. And that union is the church, the union in which we see God's glory and have made present to us the salvific effects of his hour. So the hour of God's saving action is when the glory of God is fully manifest in Christ, an hour which is made present to us across time and space through the church, which is the means by which we achieve the union with Christ that he prays for to the Father in this passage. So what does this tell us about us, about human beings? What's it tell us about us and our relationship to God? Well, to answer that question, we can look at our third word, which is no. We've looked at glory and we've looked at our, and now we're going to look at the word no. So we read in the passage that Jesus says to the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And later he says, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. Now, we looked at the word no in some detail a few weeks ago in our webinar on the Good Shepherd Discourse in chapter 10 of John's Gospel. And in that passage, we read that when he, that is the Good Shepherd, has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. So we discussed in that webinar how knowledge of God and the importance of knowledge of God for salvation is one of the great themes of John's Gospel. Knowing Christ is knowing God, and it's by knowing God through Christ that we can receive the gift of eternal life with God. As Jesus puts it in the passage, this is eternal life. And this theme of knowledge of God and salvation, eternal life, comes in right at the beginning of John's Gospel. We read in John chapter 1 that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And you might be thinking, well, what's that got to do with knowledge? But the word in Greek for overcome is katalaban, which can mean overcome in the sense of overwhelm or seize, but it can also mean to understand or apprehend something. So really apprehend is a bit of a better translation because it gets both these senses of physically grasping something, but also mentally or intellectually grasping something. So we could also translate that passage, the darkness did not understand Jesus. The darkness did not comprehend Jesus, apprehend him. It did not know him. So God's light is linked with understanding and knowledge. So this theme of knowledge then gets developed 
first in the Good Shepherd discourse, where the sheep are saved and led to the safety of the sheepfold by the voice of the shepherd, whom they know. Knowledge here is clearly personal knowledge. It's the knowledge of trust and familiarity. This is very important. The knowledge of God to John is not a purely intellectual, conceptual thing. It's knowing in the way that you know your best friend or your closest sibling. To the ancient Hebrew mind, in the Jewish setting in which the Old Testament was written and developed, the setting in which Jesus lived, to know God is to acknowledge his works, to respond to him personally. It's not an abstract form of contemplation, it's a form of experience of a person. But that's not to say that there's no role in John's understanding for knowledge as an act of the human intellect. That too is important. As well as the influence of ancient Hebrew culture, where knowledge of God was understood as something experiential, John also was under the influence of ancient Greek culture, where knowledge of higher things was thought of as something abstract and intellectual. And John brings both of these understandings of the word knowledge into his gospel. So we see the second understanding of the word knowledge, um, the more intellectual one, in John chapter 11 at the raising of Lazarus, when Jesus says to Martha, Lazarus's sister, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So knowledge of God is also knowledge of what he has done and of what he will do. The tenets of the Jewish faith that reaches its culmination and its completion in the Christian faith of God made man in Christ. In the discourse in John 17, our gospel passage, this theme of knowledge of God as eternal life, as salvation, comes to its fulfilment. And remember, we looked at the beginning of this webinar at how this really is the purpose of this discourse, to bring the themes of Jesus' teaching to their climax and fulfilment by putting them all squarely in the context of Jesus' communion with his Father before we're plunged into the events of the hour. So we read in this passage, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you. So from that, we can see that there we've got both kinds of knowledge, the personal knowledge of relationship and experience, and also the intellectual knowledge, the act of the intellect that is made possible by our rational nature, a nature which is God's gift to his human creature. The glory of Christ manifest in his incarnation and above all in the hour of his passion, death, resurrection and ascension makes known to us the Father. And to know the Father, Jesus tells us, is to have eternal life. To truly be in a personal relationship with God, making use of all our human faculties, is to have overcome sin and death. It is to live in eternal joy and beatitude with God. Now, when we talk about this kind of personal relationship with God, we're talking about something that begins with the sacrament of baptism the sacrament by which we become part of the body of Christ and share in Christ's life. And when the Catechism talks of the virtue of faith, the gift of God which we receive in our baptism, along with hope and love, 
it's noticeable that the Catechism often talks of faith in terms of knowledge. Because this gift of God, faith, doesn't give us something that's like the church equivalent of a superpower, you know, something really weird and unexpected, like the ability to fly or lift cars with one hand, that's got nothing to do with what human beings can normally do. Faith, in fact, takes a natural human ability that we have, the ability to know, and it perfects it and completes it by God's grace. It makes it into a means to be close to God. Through the gift of faith, it is possible to apply our ability to know, not just to our friends and family or to facts about the natural world, but to God himself. So this is what we read in the Catechism. First, in paragraph 157, we read, Faith is certain. It is more certain than human knowledge because it is founded on the very word of God who cannot lie. And then we go on to read in paragraph 158, faith seeks understanding. It is intrinsic to faith that a believer desires to know better the one in whom he has put his faith and to understand better what he has revealed. A more penetrating knowledge will in turn call forth a greater faith, increasingly set afire by love. In short, the church gives us the gift of faith in baptism to perfect and complete our human ability to know, both to know intellectually and to know personally. By faith, we are brought to the knowledge of God, which, as his son Jesus tells us in this gospel passage, is eternal life. It's knowledge that reveals to us the glory of God, which is made most fully manifest in the hour of his son, the one great act of salvation, the culmination of his revelation of divine glory, whose fruits come to us here and now through the grace of the church.